please take your Bibles and turn them with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. The year was 1938. The place was the NCAA championships in Minneapolis. On the night before the championship race, someone warned up-and-coming track star Louis Zamperini that some of the rival coaches were ordering their runners to sharpen their spikes and slash him during the race. Now, Louis blew off that warning, but he was wrong to do so because the next day, in the middle of that race, right when Louis was about to take the lead, he found himself surrounded by several runners. They boxed Louis in. They impeded his progress. Uh, the guy next to him suddenly swerved in on Louis and impaled his toe with his spike. Another guy right in front of Louis started kicking backwards and slicing Louis's shins. Still another guy threw an elbow and cracked Louis's ribs, and he found himself trapped for almost two laps, bleeding in pain, his progress hindered, his race in jeopardy, his freedom undermined. We can only imagine the frustration of Louis's friends and supporters, maybe watching in the stands or, or listening on the radio as they realized this race was in jeopardy. But that would pale in comparison to the frustration that the Apostle Paul had writing the book of Galatians. As Paul watches the race of his Galatian brothers and sisters, he sees that there are some devious men, some false teachers on the track who are impeding the progress of these new Christians. And Paul knows that what is on the line is not simply an earthly race with minimal consequences. Here much more is at stake. We've got a spiritual race with souls on the line. I think the Apostle Paul was a sports fan. If you read some of his metaphors and illustrations in the Scriptures, he often viewed the Christian life in, in sporting terms and, and often went back to this image of, of, of a race. He writes in 1 Corinthians 9... Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So how do you run the spiritual race? How do you run to obtain that prize? That's where Paul's going in these last couple of chapters uh, in the book of Galatians. In the first two chapters, Paul established his personal apostolic credentials, that he was from God, that he received a revelation directly from Jesus Christ. In chapters 3 and 4, he gives theological instruction. And then in chapters 5 and 6, we're going to get very practical in light of the theology that Paul has taught, how now shall we live? And we're going to begin to dip our toe into that today, and then we'll really jump into the deep end of the pool uh, next week. So let's get to work, and if you'd please stand with me now as we read the Scriptures... We stand out of reverence and respect for these words because these words are the words of the living God. Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 7. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. 
and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your precious, holy, and inspired word. These are not just words that are full of tips and suggestions. These are words directly from you about how now we should live. So, Father, help us to receive the word with joy, gladness, anticipation, and help us to receive it with belief. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, but he's composing this epistle from the city of Corinth. And just outside of Corinth was a massive stadium where the Isthmian Games were held. They were second only to the Olympic Games. And and, uh, as he writes to the Galatian churches, he begins to, to think about a foot race. And he uses this as an illustration to help them. And so we've got Paul here, like a track and field coach, giving three words of encouragement to the Galatians. He's urging them towards victory, but he also gives... Three words of condemnation regarding the false teachers demanding their disqualification. And as we look at this text, I want you to consider it training for your own race that you must run. And the Apostle Paul's first word of encouragement to the Galatians is that they have been set free to run. Set free to run. Now, uh, Paul is building on this theme of freedom Uh, Last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 5, and in verse 1 he starts off by saying, For freedom, Christ has set us free. I was going to begin to talk more about this freedom as the letter unfolds. Now much of what Paul has had to say to the Galatians has been really, really hard. It's been really tough. But here Paul provides an encouraging word in verse 7. You were running well. He commends the Galatian Christians and and how they began their spiritual race. He reminds them of those wonderful, glorious days in the beginning. You see, before they heard the truth, they were living in the bondage of pagan religion. The elementary principles of the world, Paul calls it in chapter 4. They lived in fear of false gods. They tried to appease their guilty consciences and appease their gods through religious rituals and works. They were enslaved to that sort of lifestyle. And you can get a pretty candid uh, snapshot of that bondage if you read Acts chapter 14. It's very fascinating. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas start evangelizing the Galatians, and the people think that Paul and Barnabas are the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. And they're trying to worship them. And you got the priest of Zeus coming out of the temple to lead everyone in, in these sacrifices. And Paul's trying to tell them, hey, we are just men, but let me tell you about the real God. But, but even so, he can barely restrain them from offering sacrifices to them anyway. These people are so out of control and we're in, in such fear of their gods. But... Some of the Galatians end up coming to believe in the gospel that Paul preached, a gospel 
that told them that you don't achieve peace with God through trying really hard to be really good, trying to appease God through your own efforts and religious superstitions rooted in fear. Instead, you experience peace with God and forgiveness of sins by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, a faith that unites the believer to Christ, reconciles him to God, and brings about a change in identity where the believer is no longer a slave, slave to sin and fear and a guilty conscience. He's now counted as a son in the household of God, even an heir. And in the beginning, the Galatians were enjoying their newfound freedom. Uh, they, they were, as Paul says, running well. But look at the end of verse 7. He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? That word hindered in the Greek carries the idea of someone cutting in on the runner in a race and illegally interfering with his progress. And these cheaters who are cutting in are known as the Judaizers, a group of Jewish legalists who insisted that faith in Christ alone was not enough to be saved. But that any Gentile, any non-Jew, that also must obey Jewish Old Covenant religion. And the centerpiece of all of that was the rite of circumcision, which before Christ came was required of all who would be counted as one of God's people. For, for the Judaizers, circumcision and the keeping of other various Old Testament laws was a means of salvation. It was a means of earning favor with God, of working your way into heaven. The Judaizers basically are saying, you must finish what Christ has begun. And that message was 180 degrees opposite of Paul's message. Indeed, if you flip back to chapter 3, Paul says to them in dismay in chapter 3, verse 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, now Paul has been explaining in prior chapters that no one can be justified before God by trying to keep his law because we're all lawbreakers. To trust in your own ability to keep the law will damn you because you, you, you broke it. To trust in Jesus Christ who kept the law on your behalf and paid his penalty on your behalf will save you. And the Galatians at one time trusted. They were running well. But now they were beginning to get off course as the Judaizers are hindering them and boxing them in. Now, this is very instructive for us. The Galatians were real Christians. Paul calls them brothers. They heard the gospel <clears throat> with faith and received the Holy Spirit, according to Galatians 3. They are counted as sons of God in that they came to know God and are known by God, Galatians chapter 4. And yet Paul says that these Galatians are in danger of departing from sound doctrine and being deceived by false teaching. Real, genuine Christians can be tricked and deceived if they are not vigilant. Paul is glad that the Galatians have started well, but guess what? They've got to continue running. That's true for anyone who's a Christian. Paul sees the Christian life as a race the gospel as the track, and continued belief in and obedience to the gospel as how we run to win. Yes, we are saved by faith alone and not works, but faith actually produces something in our lives. And that's what Paul's getting at if you back up to, to verse 6, 
where Paul says, this is where we ended last week, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Faith produces love. You could say, you could also say that faith produces obedience to God. The obedience does not save you. The obedience is simply the outworking of the faith. And chief among the things the believer is to obey is the truth of the gospel. That's why Paul is concerned in verse 7 that they're actually considering turning away from trusting in Christ alone and turning towards a trust in their own works. Paul says in verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. And back in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says that God called them, he called them in the grace of Jesus Christ. They were called in grace. What is grace? Grace is something you don't deserve. It's a favor that God shows that is unmerited by any human effort. So if the one who originally called the Galatians called them in grace, then the Judaizers and their message can't be from God. Because the Judaizers' whole message undermines grace and puts the spotlight on human effort. And if their message is not from God, then there's only one other possible source for their message. And that's the devil. Paul is telling his readers, connect the dots, Galatians. God called you in grace. Their message isn't grace. Therefore, they aren't from God. Therefore, their message is not from God. Now, you'd think this would be obvious. But false teachers are always very persuasive. That's why they're dangerous. False teachers never come into churches with horns and hoofs holding satanic Bibles. They might even come in with an ESV study Bible. I know that shocks some of you. But listen to what Paul says about false teachers in 2 Corinthians 11. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. This is why Christians need to be on guard. Today, I don't think we really have to concern ourselves with the Judaizer cult. But our world abounds with very powerful, very persuasive teachers who, while claiming to embrace Jesus Christ, are trying to sway you to believe things that are contrary to the gospel. People everywhere are falling for the false gospel of works salvation, works righteousness. I remember once talking with a man who insisted that you cannot be saved unless you are baptized. Now, that is a very common belief, and there are churches here in Atlanta that embrace that view. He suggested that you you could believe in Jesus, but you still couldn't be saved until you actually went through the waters of baptism. And I'm sitting there listening to this on the verge of pulling out what little hair I still have on my head, saying, dude, that's works salvation. And, and, And he asked about our churches cooperating in ministry together, and I said, no. You believe in a different gospel. Now, we obviously believe baptism is very important here at Harbin's, right? (laughs) We just celebrated two believers as they were going into the water. But we did not baptize Andrea and Ethan to get them saved. We baptized them because they were already saved. 
They declared through their baptism that Christ did for them what they could not do for themselves. He died for them, he was buried for them, and he was raised for them, and through that he purchased their salvation, and so all credit and glory goes to God. You see, friends, this idea of salvation through baptism or any, any other means outside of faith in Christ alone is just a repackaging of the Galatian heresy. Friends, the pull to legalism is powerful. We may have our doctrine of baptism down, and we may affirm salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, but some of you personally know firsthand the power of the temptation towards legalism, where you are tempted to believe that how you perform today impacts your favor with God. You're tempted to think that God's love for you rises and falls based on how obedient you've been this week. And when you disobey, you, you feel like you need to do some extra stuff to, to make up for it and get God back on your side. Friends, guess what? That's legalism. That's living like a pagan according to the elementary principles of this world where, where the pagans needed to manipulate the gods by their behavior to win their favor. It's like the Judaizers who said, well, Christ did die for you, but you better do these other things to make sure you're really saved. Friends, that's slavery. That's bondage. And that persuasion does not come from him who calls you. So rest fully in the gospel and in what Jesus has done for you. Be free and stay on track, running exclusively within the lanes of the gospel for your hope. The slightest deviation can get you off course. And that's the point in verse 9. Look what Paul says. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Some of you bakers know exactly what this means. Some of you love to bake. I love to eat baked goods, so we get along. I don't know a lot about baking, but one thing I do know is that bread doesn't rise unless that dough contains some yeast in it. And how much yeast does it take? Just a little bit. Just a pinch of law contaminates the whole gospel. The Apostle Paul, being someone who is well-versed in Old Testament religion, would have been very familiar with the spiritual symbolism of leaven. Part of the Jewish Passover celebration included a complete and total removal of leaven from the house. For seven days, leaven was forbidden. In Deuteronomy 16, God says to the Israelites, if anyone eats what is leaven during that time, he would be cut off from Israel. The leaven represents sin. And as the Hebrews purged the leaven from their homes, it symbolized purging sin from their lives and from their community. In his letter to the Galatians, the yeast would refer to the sinful, heretical teaching of salvation through works and those that spread that kind of teaching. And we see here the danger of theological error. Now, any kind of theological error is problematic. But the most catastrophic of those errors would be errors that distort, warp, contaminate, and obscure the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can have some disagreements on certain theological topics and still be Christians together. Did you know that? We can disagree on eschatology, the timing of the rapture, church governance, and we can still regard one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Indeed, we can be even wrong on certain theological points and still go to heaven. 
But when it comes to the gospel, there is no margin of error. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. If you miss this, you miss everything. Philip Ryken writes, From this we learn the necessity of resisting any and every error that strikes at the fundamentals of the gospel. False doctrine usually does not sound that false in the beginning. Justified by faith or justified by faith alone? People say, who cares? Or they say, what difference does it make whether Jesus is the way or simply a way to God? The problem with the Galatian churches is that they gave false doctrine a hearing in their congregations. They let a little bit of leaven in. And who knows why? Maybe at first they just wanted to be polite and listen. Uh, Maybe they didn't want to be accused of being narrow-minded. But friends, when the gospel is at stake, political correctness and tolerance must fall by the wayside. You don't give this stuff a hearing. You don't play with it. You don't flirt with it. Anything that is contrary to the gospel must immediately be purged and dealt with swiftly, lest you too one day find your progress in the race being impeded and frustrated. The Galatians and you have been set free to run. Paul also says that you've been set free to finish, as in finish the race. Paul now increases his encouragement as he cheers the Galatians on in their race. After a lot of hard and tough talk, Paul now suddenly unleashes the most powerful word of encouragement he could give. In verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. What a beautifully stunning word after all that Paul has said so far in Galatians. Stunning because he keeps warning the Galatians of danger. And then suddenly he says, you're going to make it in the end. That's remarkable and beautiful. Louis Zamperini was bleeding and in pain, hindered, trapped, boxed in by those who sought to impede his progress. As he neared the final turn, he eyed a tiny gap in front of him, and at that moment he burst free, bleeding, his shoe torn open, his chest in agony. He blew past everybody, he took the lead, and he won the race. Injured, battered, bruised, but through his effort and determination and will, he made it. Is that what Paul has in mind as he's cheering on the Galatians? How could the Galatians make it? I mean, you think about what's going on here. They were new Christians. They were vulnerable. They were easily swayed by false teachers. They were spiritually weak and confused. Their faith was weak. How can Paul be so sure? Look at verse 10 again. Paul has confidence. Where is Paul's confidence found? Aren't you glad Paul simply didn't say, I have confidence in you? Would that encourage you if he said that? Absolutely not. If it's on my shoulders, I'm done. I'm out of gas. I'm not making it to the finish line. He says, I have confidence in the Lord, but you will take no other view. 
Paul believes they are going to make it because Paul believes that these Galatians are really Christians. They're really converted. They are genuinely the sheep of God. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. The Bible wonderfully promises that those who really belong to God will continue to belong to God. That those who belong to God will persevere. They will keep going. They will keep following. They will keep pressing forward towards the finish line. There might be stumbles along the way. There might be falls. There might be temporary diversions as other, others run onto the track and try to hinder you and box you in. Or as even your own sin entangles you and trips you up. You may even at times feel like it's, it's, you take a few steps forward and then you take a few steps back. Maybe you feel like that this morning. You're, you feel tired. You feel weak. You feel like you are crawling at a snail's pace spiritually. But listen to what Paul writes elsewhere in Philippians chapter 1. Again, he expresses confidence about his readers. In Philippians 1, he says, verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Some of you need to memorize Philippians 1, 6 and let that soak in. He who began a good work in you might bring it to completion. He who began a good work in you will kind of bring it to completion. He who began a good work in you will hopefully bring it to completion. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion as long as you don't mess up X amount of times or commit this sin or that sin. No, that's not what it says. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Don't place your confidence in your own ability to make it. If you do that, that's heading back in the direction of work salvation again, and it will make you miserable. Legalists are some of the most miserable people on the planet because their eyes are on themselves and not on Jesus Christ. Get your eyes off of yourself, and with Paul, take confidence in the fact that the Lord who saves you is the Lord who will keep you. Now, some of you might be confused by all this. You're thinking, Deemer, you said earlier how we, how we have to run the race like it's our responsibility. And now you're saying that it's God who causes us to win in the end. So am I running or is he working? And the answer is yes. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul writes to the church in Philippi. For it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. God's commitment to work in you to finally save you does not cancel out your responsibility to run. And your responsibility to run does not nullify his powerful work in you, a work that will carry you across the finish line. Notice, by the way, that the Galatians aren't running alone. The one who's been coaching them and warning them and encouraging them is not just in the stands. The Apostle Paul has been running with them all along, and he too has had people trying to hinder him and his race. Look at verse 11. He says, But I, if I, brothers, 
still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Evidently, the Judaizers were spreading rumors about Paul that he actually agreed with them about circumcision, but that he watered down his message. Paul says, nope, that doesn't make sense. If that were true, why is everyone persecuting me? Verse 11, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul's point here is that if he were preaching circumcision, people wouldn't persecute him. Because to preach a false gospel that is based on works righteousness is not offensive to people. Salvation through legalistic works, whether it's circumcision or baptism or going to church or giving money to poor people or taking communion or following man-made rules, that's no big deal. Folks aren't offended by that because works salvation puffs up man. It makes us seem greater than we really are. It strokes our ego. But the message of the cross is offensive because the cross says you're a sinner. You have nothing that you can offer to God that will satisfy him. That you deserve eternity in hell as punishment for your rebellion against him. Don't you see that offending some people? And that the only way for you to be saved was for Christ to come in and do it all for you as a substitute. He had to keep God's law for you because you broke it. He had to pay the price for your sins on the cross because you couldn't pay for them outside of hell. And he conquered the grave for you because you couldn't do that either. That's really offensive to people. Maybe it's offensive to someone here. If that's you, stop being offended. Instead, love it. Embrace it. Place your trust in that. And if you do, Christ's perfect righteousness will be credited to your account. So that you can stand before a holy God. And you'll find that your sin debt was credited to Jesus 2,000 years ago as he hung on the cross. And all of that sin that you committed was fully and finally punished in him. So you don't have to fear punishment anymore. And his resurrection from the grave becomes a token and a down payment on your future resurrection. Embrace that and you'll find freedom. Now... As Paul's encouragement of the Galatians has grown more robust and powerful with each stroke of the pen, so has his condemnation of the Judaizers grown more powerful. In verses 7 through 9, Paul speaks of them as treacherous intruders who have a corrupting influence on the churches. In verse 10, he warns that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. That's probably a reference to final judgment. And in verse 12, Paul says something that really disturbs some people. Paul's frustration has been rising throughout this letter, and he finally just unleashes his righteous anger. He says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Yes, that's saying what you think it's saying. And so people struggle with this. I can't believe what Paul's saying here. This seems to be rather crude talk for an apostle. Martin Luther, who was known for some crudeness himself, translated verse 12 this way. Tell those who disturb you, I'd like to see the knife slip. The NIV translates Paul as saying, I wish they'd go the whole way. 
So is this out of line? Is this crude joking going on? Does Paul just like lose control and take this into the gutter? Surely not. The same apostle who said this is going to say in just a few verses that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Paul's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul's not out of control. And he's not trying to be rude and crude. Let's remember the context here. The Judaizers are pushing salvation through legalistic works. And the main work they're focusing on is circumcision, a surgery on the male reproductive organ that under the old covenant marked out God's people. But what Paul is doing here is he's making a point about the value of their circumcision. Paul isn't wishing violence on them. There's instead something much more profoundly spiritual that he's communicating. Northern Galatia was an epicenter for the worship of Sybil. Now, one thing that went on in this cult was that the priests actually castrated themselves. So it may well be that Paul is saying here that these Judaizers who are presenting themselves as teachers of the one true God are in reality no better spiritual leaders than the pagan priests. They might as well just go the whole way. Now, Paul's already been connecting the teaching of the Judaizers with pagan worship. We've talked about this in previous sermons. Both are legalistic. Both are rooted in fear. Both are forms of satanic bondage. And both are useless in regards to salvation. However, I think Paul may have had in mind the Old Testament, in particular Deuteronomy 23.11, where Moses writes that no one who has been emasculated by cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord, or as the Septuagint translates it, the, the church of the Lord. Now, if that's the case, Paul really is being ironic here. These Judaizers who had prided themselves on their circumcision and who taught that this right marked them as part of God's people are in reality, because of their unbelief in the gospel, excluded from God's assembly, excluded from God's people, excluded from God's church. Uncircumcised Gentile believers are a part of God's people, while circumcised Jewish unbelievers are shut out of the kingdom. Now, this takes us back to themes we've seen earlier in Galatians, like the curse, the anathema that Paul hangs on anyone who preaches a different gospel, back in Galatians 1. Or Galatians 3, that says that it's actually those of faith who are the true sons of Abraham, part of the people of God, regardless of circumcision and race. Paul's not being crude, he's not, he's not, but, but he is being harsh. The Bible has always reserved its harshest language for false teachers because they're dangerous and they lead people to hell. Jesus himself spoke in tough terms towards harsh teachers, or I'm sorry, false teachers. He spoke harshly to false teachers. So, for example, in, uh, verse, uh, in Mark chapter 9, verse 42, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, by the way, I don't think little ones means kids. It means believers, disciples. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
All right, that's even more extreme language than what Paul is using. False teaching and false teachers are not to be trifled with. And Paul, as an apostolic, spirit-inspired writer, has the authority to pronounce such hard judgments. Now, Paul doesn't end there. Can you, can you imagine what a downer this book would be if it ended at verse 12? I wish that those who trouble you might emasculate themselves. Love Paul. Thankfully, that's not the case. And he now turns his attention back to the race of the Galatians, and he shares with them another word of encouragement. And this is my final point, and it's really short because it's just an introduction to where we'll go next week. It's that we have been set free to serve. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So Paul is continuing to explain what freedom in Christ looks like. Typically, when we think of freedom, we think of it as just doing whatever you want. That's not how the Bible views Christian freedom. You're not free to do whatever you want if what you want is sin. Don't abuse your freedom, Paul says. You're actually set free for something greater than maximizing your own selfish, self-centered comforts. Instead, you are freed up to serve. That's actually counterintuitive, isn't it, when you think about it? It gets better, though. That word serve is from the Greek word doulos, which actually means slave. You're freed up to be a slave. Your life is not about you. It's about self-sacrificial service to others in the body of Christ. We'll talk more about that in future sermons. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who hasn't even begun this race that Paul has been talking about. You know, you'll never make it to the finish line and enjoy everything that God has now and in eternity if you never even begin. It's time to abandon your hope and your trust in yourself for salvation. It's time to abandon any other way, any other religion, any other God you've been counting on and get onto the track, get into the starting block, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and run. Others of you here are running. You've been running for a while. But maybe there's, there's something or someone that has been impeding your race. Maybe there's a, a certain teaching that you've been listening to that is contrary to the gospel and you need to jettison that. Maybe there are people in your life, sins you are clinging on to, beliefs that are in your head, that are boxing you in, holding you back, keeping you from being and experiencing all that Christ wants you to be and all that he wants you to enjoy, diverting you from the truth of the gospel. Maybe you feel trapped and tangled up and you are losing your footing. The answer for you is not to quit. And it's not to try to push forward in your own strength and rely on yourself. The author of the book of Hebrews spends an entire chapter, Hebrews 11, giving examples of believers who, through many trials and adversities and tribulations, they keep running. 
And there was only one thing that propelled them forward in a race that was otherwise impossible. And that thing was not their own strength. It was faith. It was looking ahead. It was looking forward by faith to the fulfillment of God's gospel promises. And after all of that in Hebrews 11, then it goes on into Hebrews 12, the author says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We don't look to ourselves for hope. We look to Jesus. You see, Jesus has already crossed the finish line. He's already won. He is, as it says in Hebrews 2.9, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the victor and the champion. And guess what? He didn't suffer and bleed and die so that maybe his people might be saved. He suffered and died to guarantee that his people would be saved. If there was only one of his people that didn't make it across the finish line, it wouldn't say as much about you and your weakness as much as it would say something about Jesus, that he could save himself but not others. But thanks be to God. That Jesus won the race not just for himself, but for us. If Jesus can cross the finish line, guess what? He is quite capable of ensuring that you'll make it to the other side also. In fact, you know what? He promised it. As Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. And because of that, we can run free and we can also rest. Knowing that he will hold us fast and not let us go. So that at the end of it all we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, who wrote in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you will help us to take these words to heart. I pray that you will help us to remember that we must run. But I also pray that you will help us to remember that you will get us across the finish line. That the power that is in us to endure to the end is not something that is native to us, but something that belongs to you. Help us to know that as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that it is God who works in us, both to will and work, His good pleasure. Help us, Lord, as we run. 
to get our eyes off of ourselves and to look to Jesus who has won. In Jesus' name, amen.